Hello, welcome back to the Female Founder World podcast. It's Jasmine, the host of the show, facilitator of all of our Female Founder World workshops. And today I have a guest who a lot of you will know. She's the founder of a brand called Brightland. They're famous for their olive oil. They're famous for their beautiful branding and for their like really iconic white olive oil bottles. You've seen them, I bet. Her name is Ashwarya Aya. And before we get into the show, I just have a very quick note from the sponsor of our show, Gorgeous. I am Alexandria Collis, Director of Customer Experience for Princess Polly. I'm focused on our strategy and innovation in the CX department here at Princess Polly. The Princess Polly online store was born in a true startup style in 2010 in Australia, and we launched our US-based operation in Los Angeles in 2019. And now we are one of the fastest growing online women's fashion brands in the US and Australia. Our first value is customer centricity, so every single department is paying attention to the customer experience. We aim to deliver every single time and being customer focused is really daring to be different. We first and foremost listen to our customers and always remember that customer perception is reality. Our demographic is Gen Z and this is the I expect a response now. I call them the now customer. Our CX teams engage across every single channel. It is very important that we meet our customers where they are and Gorgeous allows us the opportunity to be efficient with all of these channels located in one place. We show up to work each and every day with one goal in mind, and that is to provide the best customer experience for our customers all over the globe. I have a quote, and I always tell our CX leaders that customer experience is the heart of an organization, and we pump the blood and deliver the oxygen to the vital organs in the business to help them thrive and grow stronger. So AI and tech have played a large piece in a lot of the decisions that we've made at Princess Polly over the last year and going forward that we will make when it comes to utilizing systems to their fullest optimization. I will share that late last year, for example, we migrated ticketing platforms from, from the very popular Zendesk to Gorgeous because it is the experience that we're focused on, the agent experience and the customer experience. If you're interested in learning more about Gorgeous, you can go to gorgeous.com and start a free trial today. You are now entering female founder world with your host, Jasmine Grindsworthy. Okay, let's start with, for folks who haven't heard of Brightland, what are you guys building? Okay, Brightland is a pantry essentials brand. We're best known for our extra virgin olive oils, infused olive oils, vinegars, and really delicious honey. All of our products are sourced directly from small farms up and down the central coast of California. We recently introduced actually a Hawaiian farm for, for our honey, but all that to say, we really champion the integrity and the craft that the small farms are undertaking. And we're also well known for our pretty good design, I would say. Our bottles are, are quote unquote iconic with the kind of the matte white, you know, bottle and, and all of that. So we take design pretty seriously. And as a team, we love to eat and talk about food. When I first saw you guys pop up a few years ago, it was when I was working in editorial. And I remember you coming onto the scene and then all of a sudden just being everywhere. And it was the white bottle with a very iconic logo. And I'm wondering, how did you launch with such a bang? Like what, why did you stand out so quickly? Well, I mean, this was the end of 2018. And mm -hmm. I think one, it was less noisy. There were, you know, there were plenty of brands launching, but, you know, it, it definitely has felt like 
2019, 2020, 2021 were all very noisy years. So I just want to say that too. Yeah. I think the landscape has shifted a lot in the last three years. So I think it was easier to break through generally as a new emerging brand. But then on top of that, I think like the fact that our bottles were really different than the green or the random brown bottles that you see at the grocery store, I think allowed us to stand out. And then finally, you know, I, at the very beginning of the business, like I bootstrapped it and I didn't have a budget for, you know, really fancy projects or kind of launch strategies, but I came from the corporate communications world. And so we, I invested in PR a little bit and how that like manifested was that on the day that we launched, we were featured in this like tiny little short blurb from the New York times. It was like five sentences long, but it really helped put us on the map. And now, you know, people like founders ask me who are starting companies today, oh, if we do that same strategy, will it work? And I don't know if it would, to be totally honest. I think the game has changed. Totally. Things are so different. I was speaking with someone recently about you know, it's so easy to launch a consumer brand now. The The barrier to entry is so low. You can yeah. private label formula if you're in beauty and easily find packaging and get really small units and off you go, you've got a brand. But it's how do you stay relevant and how do you build that longevity? That is really what's difficult. Anyone can launch with a bank, get a few sales, maybe go on TikTok, but it's actually building a brand and something that cuts through, which I think once people a year in, they kind of figure out, oh, this is this is the real challenge here now. This is where things are different. Yep, absolutely. I couldn't agree with that more. And I also tell <clears throat> aspiring entrepreneurs or people who are in the early stages, like try not to spend too much time looking at what other companies are doing because yeah. the playbook just keeps changing. Yeah. And the best ideas for your company and the way to actually build soul is to look outside of what everyone's doing. So what's working now? I feel like we've really skipped ahead to, you know, 2022, but the landscape is so different. And you've obviously been able to build up a lot of brand equity over the years when it's funny to think I thought things were noisy in 2018, 2019, but now just looking at these consumer brands that have popped up in the last two years, post-pandemic or during pandemic, things are so different. What is working? Are you guys on TikTok? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we are on we are on TikTok. We're very, I would call us like organically testing it out. Mm-hmm. I think what's working is having a bit of a foundation. I don't know if I would start a consumer brand right now. Yeah. Myself. You know, there's probably people much, you know, sort of more galvanized than I would be to do it, but I think it's an extremely challenging business climate. And almost like a little bit of it, it it requires a a business no matter how big or small to do a little bit of everything which is really hard when we also are telling our teams and ourselves we have to focus mm-hmm. we have to stay ruthlessly focused and also be able to be comfortable to say no which we do all the time but at the same time we have to say yes to okay let's do the event let's you know do the gifting let's also be on tiktok Let's also test, you know, I'm making this up like LinkedIn. Yeah. And there's a little bit of everything that you have to dip your toes into. And so I don't know. I'm, if anyone has a magic solution, I'd love to hear it. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I've interviewed hundreds of founders and we haven't found one yet. So I'll let you know if somebody has it. People that I'm speaking to now, it definitely seems to be if you're bootstrapped, like launching on TikTok and, 
you know, for some people that can generate a lot of sales and then for others, it's a real flash in the pan and it's not a long-term strategy. And then you're chasing that growth and virality again for another six months to try and get that hit again. For people who built businesses on Instagram, like we know it doesn't take much for that to be taken away and that that can be great in the short term, but I don't know if that's the long-term growth strategy. Yes. These are extremely wise words that you're saying, like such wise words. And I've also heard of brands that, you know, they'll have some videos go viral on TikTok, but that actually doesn't result in sales Mm -hmm. results in like maybe followers, which then may end up, you know, sort of panning out and paying out at some point. But like you said, relying on a third party platform like that, when the algorithm, we're at the whims of these algorithms and these companies choosing to do whatever they want is so dangerous and scary and yet everyone's attention is there yeah. and you know, one example of that during holiday 2021 I was really feeling that fatigue of like why do we have to only rely on you know Instagram or you know whatever and so we said let's test local tv ads and mm. so we did local tv ads and then when we got the results it was really like we were, it was like a tree dropping in a forest. It yeah. didn't do anything. And That's so interesting. A, yeah, it was a real, honestly, like a, I was disappointed. I really wanted mm. it to do something because I don't want us to have to rely on the same platform. Mm. But everybody's attention, like if you think about what anyone does before they go to sleep, when they wake up, when they're waiting in line, they're on their phone scrolling. Yeah. That's where we are. It's true. It's very true. I was speaking with a founder. Their business is called Etoile Collective and she makes beauty organizers cases and that kind of thing. They've built like a really big business in Australia and she's just launched in the US. And the first time they went viral, they had millions of views on this one video, but all of the views were in Asia and another country that they didn't ship to and it didn't convert into anything. And she's like, you can't control where you're going viral as well. It's just one of those things where it's hit and miss and it feels so driven by luck and not a formula, which I think is That's really it. interesting. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about partnerships a little bit. That's one of the strategies it looks like you guys are utilizing to grow. And I'm really curious about how you think about, so you've had a partnership with, for example, Sweetgreen, and then you've also done artist collabs. How do you guys think about that now? Partnerships have been such a huge sort of like a backbone to how we think about business at Brightland. And it could range, you know, partnerships can be so simple. It could be Mm -hmm. a giveaway or we're going to do a recipe together with another cookware brand or a food brand all the way to a product collaboration or let's do a joint event together. We really look at each avenue and angle of it and we will choose to partner with companies based on sort of our own initiatives, their own initiatives, but they've been hugely successful for us because because of a few things. One, you're introducing your brand in sort of collaboration with another brand that might be a very natural fit or might be a little bit of a, huh, like a little bit of a head scratcher. And that makes people take that second look Mm. back at you. And then on top of that, with this noisy climate, this is a great way to introduce your brand to someone else's, like another sort of like-minded companies, like-minded organizations uh, audience. So that's been hugely helpful. And we've really taken an organic approach. Like it's based on, do we feel really strongly about partnering with this particular artist? 
you know, do they have a really interesting perspective that we think could be good? Because our bottles serve as a bit of a canvas with the white matte glass. And so I always wanted it to be a bit free for the artist to, to kind of, you know, use as a canvas. And then from a brand partnerships perspective, we've done partnerships with Sweetgreen, with Food 52, with Headley and Bennett. We did a nonprofit partnership with the Slow Factory Foundation. Mm -hmm. And that's been really amazing. Each one looks really different. And I think this is going to be a strategy that we absolutely continue going forward to. How do you find those partnerships? Historically, it's been me inbound plus uh, saying, oh, we really want to do this. Should we have this conversation with this company? So it's been a mix of the three. I think we also looked at it from the lens of fashion, like very inspired by fashion brands and the amazing collaborations they do. Like I loved the Gucci North Face collaboration. Mm -hmm. You know, when I look at that, I think like, how can Brightland show up in that same way? Um, you know, food is, food's never going to be fashion and never going to be beauty, but at least we can take some of the amazing lessons. I think like beauty and fashion really push the envelope in terms of thinking about marketing and partnerships. Yeah, I think that it's so important to not just look within your category, but to look what brands are doing in other categories, because otherwise you just end up replicating what other people are doing. You don't really stand out. But particularly if you're not in the beauty or fashion category, I think looking to that space for inspiration about marketing activities, partnerships, design, because I think those two spaces are really leading the way in in those three things. Yeah, I completely agree. And we even looked at we looked at beauty in terms of photography, brand photography. Yes. We looked yeah. at beauty in terms of like talking about benefits, talking about value proposition. And I started my career in beauty at L'Oreal at Lancome, and I was blown away by how we could talk about blush, you know, in 5,000 different ways. And <laughs> I thought, I don't know why we can't do that for other categories. Yeah, smart. Absolutely. It makes sense. I was just having a conversation with the founder of Touchland, which is the really beautiful hand sanitizer like Mist. And they've taken the same approach where it's this product that hadn't been, you know, hadn't had that experience around it for a really long time. And then they drew on fashion and beauty and then created a completely different experience around this product that's been around forever. It's brilliant. So look, thousands of, we've just been speaking about this, but thousands of food brands have been launching in recent years and not all of them have cut through in the way that Brightland does. It can't just be the branding and it can't just be quality of the product. Why else do you think that your story is cutting through and that you are getting these amazing partnerships and that people know who you are in this category as a leader? I mean, honestly, I don't know. <laughs> Like, I'd be lying if I was like, these are the five things. It's a little bit of the question of what you asked around um, what's working right now. It's yeah. a little bit of everything. I think it's that again. I think it's a little bit of everything. I think it's timing. I think that mm. it is design. I think that it is what's on the inside, the product itself. I think it's the founder story. I think it's the way that we launched. I think it's who we aligned ourselves with, our photography, our site experience, our customer experience. Uh, I think it's everything. And... I don't know. I don't think there's like a formula to any of this. And I yeah. think that for a while we've tried to formulize it, everyone in the kind of consumer space. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, you know, I think it's during these like tougher times, like with the tough business climate that you'll really see, you know, and kind of like 
it'll it'll sink in it's definitely has sunk in for us like there's no one uh one solution there's no blueprint yeah and there's no blueprint for you coming to this from a communications background I also have a comms and editorial branding background how do you think that has made you better prepared to be a founder or not like what were the gaps that you needed to fill and what were your superpowers coming into it Oh my God. Yeah. So my superpowers were definitely taking the most important points of my own story and my own journey and being able to, I think, concisely and hopefully in a compelling way, share that with people. I think that comms is very much about being comfortable with discomfort. So I think I really like had had honed in that muscle for 10 years before. So not having all the answers, but still needing to kind of show up every day that's part of like corporate communications and public affairs. And so I, yeah, that was just never really something that I felt really that I thought was daunting, but you know, I was on the like comms marketing, corporate affairs, government affairs side. And so I didn't have like ops experience. I had never worked with a physical product, even in comms. I worked in FinTech. Mm. And so I really like, I think very humbled by supply chain and operations and cash flow and finance and product development and digital marketing. I mean, <laughs> all of it, right? It has been just the biggest, I think this was like probably worth 10 MBAs to be honest. Yeah. This journey that I've been on so far. How have you bridged those gaps in knowledge? Was it just Google or did you do anything formal? I hedged myself before launch. I was like, you know what? We're only going to launch with a few thousand bottles. So I didn't put all my eggs in the basket to say, okay, I'm just going to like go for it in this huge way and risk everything. I didn't even mm-hmm. raise, I didn't raise any money. So I did that in order to not feel overwhelmed by what I didn't know. And that helped a lot, I think. And then I just took one step at a time and saw, okay, at this point, we keep running out of stock. Clearly, we're not planning, like doing good enough demand planning. I probably need to bring on like a director of operations, like just kind of every step of the way. So I brought on people that were smarter than me. And then I also, yeah, a lot of Googling, honestly, like YouTube videos, Googling, asking other founders, like, how did you think about this? Yeah. Um, and cobbling it together. And I, I certainly still don't have the answers to most. Yeah. Awesome. I'm curious about your journey with funding the business and what you, what it took to get this off the ground and how you've been funding it as you've been scaling. The company was totally bootstrapped. I put in some of my savings when we started and I just put everything back into the company with every dollar that we made for the first year plus. And then at the end of 2019, I raised a like angel friends and family. I mean, I don't have wealthy friends and family, but angel around, I would call it yeah. that. And that was, yeah, that was great because it really, we brought on folks who were operators and just like people who understood what we were kind of going through. Yeah. Um, and since then we've like raised a bit more from folks like that. I mean, I, fundraising was was is not my superpower like it's very hard and I think people talk about that all the time how hard it is Mm -hmm. but it is what I found to be the hardest was the expectation that like I still would need to like keep a really close eye on every single thing happening in the business and fundraise full-time yeah it's just I just don't understand how that's possible and almost every founder I know has said it is impossible and like 
parts of your business, you're just not paying attention. You can, but to wrap your head around that. And it feels like, you know, the first round, it took me like three months to raise. And I was like, those three months were probably some of the hardest months. And, you know, I, I've heard, you know, it takes a lot longer for some people, a lot faster for some people. I'm very in awe of anyone who can raise even a dollar of outside capital, mm. to be honest. Yeah. Speaking with a lot of founders about this, I think this is where having a co-founder really comes into it, having somebody else who is doing the day-to-day and somebody who's leading the fundraise, because it does sound like more than a full-time job on its own. And then you need to keep the business going as well while you're doing that. And you need more than one person or one person is stretched extremely thin. Yes, hundred percent. And as as a founder without a co-founder, I definitely have, have felt those, that pain in those moments. How long into starting Brightland did you start to take a salary? Did you do that early on? I just feel like it's important for people to understand what this growth story really looks like for founders. Oh, absolutely. These were things that I, so, you know, I worked for 10 years in tech and so I had money saved up and I have a partner who works. And so these were things that my partner and I talked about, like how long could I go without taking a salary? And we decided like, I think we said 16 months was Mm -hmm. how long. And then after that, I'd have to figure something out. And so I think it was around that time that I raised our sort of our first round and I did start taking a salary then. So it was around, yeah, like 12 to 16 months. Interesting. The last thing that I ask everyone who comes on the show is for your top resource recommendation. That could be a book, a podcast, a community that you're part of, something that's helped you as you've been building Brightland. There's a book called The Comfort Book by Oh, never heard of it. Okay. It's just, you can open to any page if you want to, or you can read it chronologically. It's, I like to read it like in the morning and in the evening, just a couple of pages and just puts things into perspective and is super grounding. That is a great recommendation. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for telling us about how you've been building Brightland. It was great chatting. Thank you so much for having me, Jasmine.